0: Hi, this is the Meiji at 150 Student Podcast. My name is Jinno and we're going to be talking about Dark Souls today.
1: Hi there. Hi. So what are we talking about today?
0: So yeah, we're going to talk about a video game made in Japan called Dark Souls, uh, part of its unofficially titled Souls series of Dark Souls 1 Dark Souls 2, Dark Souls 3, Demon's Souls and Bloodborne.
1: So these are computer video games? Uh,
0: Well, they were originally released for the PS3, Demon's Souls being the first one. Uh, Dark Souls came out, was released for the Xbox 360 and the PS3, later ported to the PC upon fan request. And then Bloodborne was a PS4 exclusive and Dark Souls 2 and 3 were released for the PS3, uh, Xbox 360, and PC, and then uh, later ported to the PS4 and the Xbox One.
1: Okay, so they're made by a Japanese designer?
0: Yes, uh, uh, so the main director's name is Hidetaka Miyazaki. Uh, he's from From Software Studios. Uh, they created video games before in the form of the Armored Core series. I talked to them about, the, about them in my presentation. They're mostly beat-em-up games, I believe, with uh, mechs, similar to Gundam. I've personally never played them before, so I don't know too much about them. But
1: Okay, so for those of, for those of the listeners, including myself, who know nothing <laughs> about this video game, uh, what is the, the video game like? Can you just describe it in general terms, give us a quick walkthrough, or just right. what kind of environment, what kind of world is this video game?
0: So, like I mentioned, there are uh, several games in the series, so they're all a bit different, but they do share a common theme of despair and bleakness. Um, so, like I mentioned, Demon Souls and Dark Souls, they're more based on medieval, high-fantasy type of uh, settings with more of a gothic inspiration for Dark Souls, I'd, I'd argue. Bloodborne, however, is more set in Victorian era with a lot of gothic architecture and Lovecraftian-type creatures. And the gameplay for them, they're very much uh, third-person RPGs, so you've got a sword, you've got a shield. I'm trying to go through monsters, but the, the limits of your character, which is the relatively low health pool... And the stamina bar, which is something that you have to keep keep your eye on whenever you roll, you deplete stamina. Whenever you attack, you deplete stamina. If you don't have enough stamina, you can't raise your shield effectively, and that can lead to a lot of problems.
1: In my generation, we played games like Doom and Wolfenstein. <laughs> this sounds a lot more involved.
0: Um, I, I could definitely say that uh, Doom and Wolfenstein, they fulfill what I was going to talk about this in my presentation, but I decided to take it out. They fulfill what I like to call Western power fantasy. Um, It's something that I see kind of in Duke Nukem and God of War series, which I love, I love God of War, uh, but it's very much give your character as much as you can and make them just gun through either Nazis or aliens or Greek gods, whatever the game is, but very much so in Dark Souls, you're very limited at the beginning and even at the very end when you're very well equipped, a boss can still take you out in one or two shots.
1: That's what's always interesting about those games, uh, Rise of the Triad would be another one, or mm-hmm. all of those, you know, the kind of invincibility of the character. Right. And so it's in this game, you said, you actually die a lot.
0: A lot, a lot, yeah. <laughs>
1: and that's almost part of the game.
0: It, it absolutely is. Um, well, I did mention how some people have tried to beat, beat the game without any deaths, and uh, very recently someone beat the game without taking a single hit, which I know to people that haven't played the game, that doesn't seem like much, but it's very impressive considering there's enemies coming at you from... God knows how many directions. But uh, death in and of itself is very much a teaching. It's a teacher, basically. Uh, when you, whenever you die, uh, you have to realize the mistakes you made, and those who fail to learn from those mistakes will continue to die again and again.
1: So death serves a didactic purpose. Yeah,
0: essentially. And, of course, it. there are a lot of penalties to it. Uh, when you die, you drop all the souls that you've c- accumulated in that lifetime. Do uh, you have a chance to collect those souls again, as it leaves a blood stain on the ground? But once you die in the process of trying to receive get those blood uh, souls again, then they're gone forever.
1: What was that Tom Cruise movie recently, where the same kind of? Oh, plot Day of played?
0: Tomorrow, I believe. Yeah. With, uh, oh, I forgot the actress's name, but I know, I think I know which one you're talking and about. And that
1: was also a, a Japanese remake, wasn't it? I believe so. Is, but that this isn't related.
0: No, it's no, it's not. It's um. I I do believe they do have a very similar uh, thematic in that sort of sense. I I actually haven't seen the movie, nor have I read the original source material. But uh, from the trailers I've watched, it it is a little bit different.
1: So you mentioned some players have been able to win the game without even getting a single hit. I, I mean, it sounds like there's... There's enemies coming from all directions. So how are they able to do that? Are they just crazy fast with the the finger on the controllers or, or what?
0: Um, short answer: Yes. <laughs> the long answer is they, there's a mechanic in the game where every any time you roll, there's a brief section where you have invincibility, and that's what's known as invincibility frames. And what uh, players like like that person who uh, beat the game with no hits, what they try to do is they perfectly try to time up the attack with the opponent, roll into it, and then they don't take any damage. Either that or. There's another mechanic where if you have a shield, you can parry.
1: <laughs> so it sounds like you know a great deal about this game. I imagine it's one that you play often?
0: Yes. Um, actually, Dark Souls 1, I think I've beaten maybe three or four times. And I know, I know for any hardcore fans listening to the podcast, they're saying, well, that's just easy mode. Um, <laughs> Demon Souls and Dark Souls 2, I have not beaten. Dark Souls 3, I have beaten. And Bloodborne, I got through halfway through, and I had a little bit of a technical problem, and I never got past it. So I stopped playing that for a little bit. But uh, I do know... Bloodborne is actually a little bit more of a fan favorite because mm-hmm. it, it does do an entirely different thing as opposed to Dark Souls 1, 2, and 3 and Demon Souls, which are mm-hmm. s- fairly similar to each other in that sense, and Bloodborne tries to do something different.
1: So what do you like so much about these games?
0: Um, well, I just love the general atmosphere. Um, for a while I've been looking at a uh, medieval RPG-type sort of game at the time. Um, I fell in love with Oblivion the Elder, from the Elder Scrolls series, if you're familiar with that one. Oh. <laughs> cut the podcast um, yes but after that uh, the combat in that is very very easy so when I moved over to Demon's Souls at a friend's request um, initially I will admit I hated it absolutely hated it uh,
1: it sounds like a game that you can't win would just be right, no, infinitely frustrating
0: I, I'm, I'm a pretty bad gamer um, so when my, my friend told me if you love Oblivion you're going to love this game I picked it up for $20 on sale I got through the first boss in maybe a week, which is terrible time. And then on the second boss, I was so close to beating it, and then the network error cut my playthrough, and it just took me out of the game. And then I realized that when I restarted the game up that I hadn't beaten the boss, so that's actually when I quit. And then upon later research, a couple of years later, I found out that's apparently the easiest boss in the game. <laughs> and, of course, <laughs> I was telling myself, it wasn't that easy, come on. <laughs> These people are exaggerating. But um, around the time Dark Souls won came on sale, I decided to give the series another chance and the mechanic that I found different between Demon Souls and Dark Souls was uh, the health potions in the sense that Demon Souls had something called grass and you would eat the grass for health but this was a consumable item so once you okay. ate it, it'd be gone and when you died, you wouldn't have that anymore. But with Dark Souls, you had something called Estus Flasks which would re- refill upon death or anytime you stopped at a bonfire. So whenever I died, it felt less about manager, uh, resource management in that sense where mm-hmm. It was a lot more forgiving, but still, still an obviously hard game. Every time I play it, instead of trying to beat it on my first try, I take the mentality of what can I learn from this life, and then what can I learn from that mm-hmm. death.
1: So the podcast is kind of you know Japanese pop culture. How does this video game fit into Japanese pop culture?
0: Right. So um, I actually thought it was very interesting where I mentioned that Japanese video games had a bit of a stereotype, um, the, the ones that were being produced were very uh, manga f- or anime-focused, so to speak, which mm-hmm. the examples I gave were uh, Dead or Alive, Final Fantasy, Catherine, and the new one, Doki Doki Literature Club, which my friend really loves for whatever reason. Well, of course, Mario. Right, right. And, and then, and then Android- on the other side of that is <laughs> just Nintendo. It's Mario, uh, Zelda, Pokemon, and there's very little room for in-between, I'd say, and one of the only other few series that manages to do that, I'd, I'd argue, is uh, Hideo Kojima's Metal Gear Solid series. Metal Gear series, sorry, and um, and I think Dark Souls really broke into that market, and now you see a lot more serious Japanese games being made. And the examples I gave were uh, Nio and Code Vein were similar in, in gameplay.
1: Would you say that there is anything? I mean, I don't, I don't mean to essentialize you know Japanese features or something. Mm-hmm. Would, you, would you say there is there's anything Japanese about the game?
0: right? Um, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Something that I was gonna include in my presentation, but I didn't was there's a little bit of a stereotype of how complicated Japanese video games can get sometimes. Uh-huh. And if you pull up the menu for Dark Souls, there's about two or three dozen different things that you're looking at. It's your left-hand damage, your right-hand damage, your left-hand bleed, or your bleed resistance, or your ice resistance. And none of, and it's a lot to take in. And I felt um, that's a little bit of a characteristic with Japanese games as opposed to Western games. Uh-huh. Not saying that complicated menus don't exist in Western games. But um, there's a little bit of that remnant where you, you take a look at that and you say, oh, this game is very Japanese. Did
1: you ever hear the story about Super Mario Bros. 2?
0: Um, I, you might have to specify.
1: So there's this great video online. I forget. Uh, it's called, like, The Gaming Nerd or something mm. like this. And he was talking about the history of Super Mario Bros. 2. And so uh, following the success of Super Mario Bros. 1 in the North American market, mm-hmm. they wanted to capitalize on that and put out a new game very quickly. And so, well, not only in the North American market, but also in the Japanese market, it was kind of an uh, unexpected success. And so they wanted to follow up on it very quickly. And so they turned to the same designer who did Super Mario Bros. 1 to do Super Mario Bros. 2. And so there's a Japanese version of Super Mario Bros. 2 that I think was released in the arcade game style. I mean, mm-hmm. Back when they used to have arcade games. Right. <laughs> and it was incredibly hard. And so when they shipped it to Nintendo America, the Nintendo America side said, "This is way too hard. This, you know, none of the American consumers in this struggling video game market. We don't want to kind of cut ourselves out by, or we don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot by re- releasing such a, a difficult game, where we'll have all of these consumers who who really like Mario One. And then all of a sudden we throw this really hard game at them. that's gonna uh, it's gonna blow up in our face. So then that's why they came up." with the American version of Super mm. Mario Brothers 2 which was in fact an entirely different game in japan done for some world expo or something like this or with with tokyo tv and so that's why the characters are completely different they basically just said can you take this existing game rework it in mario characters rework the storyline into a mario Mm storyline and then so they just kind of repackaged it in the u.s and north america as super mario brothers 2 which Mm -hmm. which explains to me you know when i was growing up always saying well why the heck is Super Mario Bros. 2 so different than Super Mario <laughs> Brothers 1? This makes total sense. Right. But it goes along with what you're saying about Japanese games just being characteristically difficult. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like this one...
0: Very similarly, actually. Um, it's t- From Demon's Souls to Dark Souls, I think the d- difficulty stayed relatively same. But around Dark Souls is when it got super popular. But when Dark Souls 2 got released, it was actually the first game that wasn't being developed by Hidetaka Mizaki. It was uh, a producer on it. And when Dark Souls 2 got released, um, everyone complained how it was just too easy. They were introducing elements that uh, were making it a lot accessible. Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, I, my memory might be failing me here, but I think there was an article before the game got released that they were thinking about adding a difficulty thing to it. And a lot of fans were against that. But when uh, when Dark Souls 2 did come out, it was, I want to say, the the black sheep of the series. Uh, but they did release DLC, subsequent DLC after, which I believe, dubbed by the community, is one of the hardest DLCs to maybe... Retroactively fix that, mm-hmm. so I I do see a little bit of that in the Dark Souls series as well.
1: What's the receptivity of these? Do you do you have any uh, sales figures or anything like that? Is it more um, popular in Japan or the US? Or right, Canada?
0: so um, I believe they sold eight point five million copies at the time of 20, 2015, I believe, mm-hmm. and it sold around fifty or five hundred thousand copies in twenty eleven in Japan. Uh, generally speaking, I do find that the game is a lot more popular in the West. Um, because a lot of people are making not just a game to them; it's a bit of a hobby. So, like I mentioned, the people who are trying to beat the game with Guitar Hero drums or the DK bongos—I think was one of my favorite—they're—they're um, they're making a job out of this. Sometimes they're streaming it on Twitch, they're going to YouTube. Uh, some people are making what are known as lore videos. Uh, the story in Dark Souls is very, very in the background of the game. It's not the foref- its not on the forefront, and a lot of the story you're discovering for yourself. You're going to item descriptions and reading what they have to say, or you're talking to NPCs that are a little bit out of the way, and then they tell you something that gives you a little bit of a oh moment, where you're finding out about a character, a different character, and you got to piece the puzzles together. And a lot of uh, YouTubers have uh, made a bit of a career on that. I know one person was an um, epic neighbor. He, he, was a, he was a Caucasian man, but he was living in Japan at the time, and he has a Japanese wife. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and speaking of differences of, of cultures, can you talk about some of the differences between... The gaming culture in Japan and the U.S. I know recently in both countries there's a professional or e-gaming yes. circuit. <laughs> I mean, you, do you have any thoughts on differences between those?
0: Um, I would like to say that with the mediums I- in streaming nowadays, uh, most particularly Twitch for the Western audiences, uh, streaming has become very popular and, frankly speaking, a very a uh, sustainable uh, career. Um, some streamers they they. They reach to be millionaires, mm. which is frankly surprising. Um, as far as esports go, I might be a bit biased because I only pay attention to quite a few few esports. Uh, in particular, League of Legends and Overwatch, and the presence of Japanese gamers in both are very limited. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, from my from my memory, there is no professional Japanese real team it, that make it to the worlds of League of Legends, which is the final. So I haven't done too much research on the pro scenes in Japanese uh, video game, but um, I believe the Western scene is a lot bigger.
1: Now, you mentioned League of Legends, Overwatch. Are are these also Japanese games?
0: No, uh, League of Legends was developed in uh, Santa Monica, and uh, uh, Overwatch was made by Blizzard. So these are Western games, but these are games that hold a large portion of the world's international attention. I know the the joke within League of Legends and Overwatch is whichever team has more Koreans wins because k- Koreans are notoriously known for video games. Which <laughs> I can say as a Korean is not true, I am terrible. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I do believe that there's a lot there's an international audience for both, um, Korean, Chinese, but I, I do see a lack of Japanese players and Japanese teams, so that is a bit of a curious one that I haven't researched into.
1: Yeah, especially when you consider a lot of these games are Japanese in origin. I guess <laughs> other than these two, but also the video gaming industry seems to have such strong Japanese ties.
0: Now, um, the more I think about it, I think um, Japanese video games they s- severely lack in multiplayer functionalities. Um, I know for if we're talking about Nintendo, for example, the only really big uh, multiplayer games that I can think of are Super Smash Bros, Mario Kart, or newly released Splatoon. Mm. Um, Yes, and just the functionality is not there. i say online infrastructure is fairly poor compared to the Xbox or the, the PS4 or obviously the PCs. Mm-hmm. And for Dark Souls, it has a really cool multiplayer functionalities where you can actually communicate with people in games by just leaving a message on the ground, and it'll just randomly appear in other people's games. So, And you, you can battle each other. You can invade other people's worlds. You can assist other people with bosses. So they do have that sort of uh, multiplayer functionality, but it's not to the scale of something like uh, League of Legends or Overwatch or Call of Duty, where you have a bunch of people fighting against each other.
1: It, it's it is really interesting when you think of video games always had such a single-player, maybe two-player <laughs> kind of... Uh, kind of image, right? And so the idea of especially the the guy sitting in his parents' basement playing video <laughs> games all night. Right. And in some ways that's still true, you know, it, it's, it, instead you're sitting on your couch or something, but it still has become very social, and it's kind of... It has. You know, the American side has um, kind of integrated the social network into the single-player video game.
0: Right, I, I do remember a time when, you know, you go over to your friend's house and you play Halo, and you, hey, stop staring at my screen, <laughs> yeah. but we don't have that anymore. We uh, I think Halo, their latest Halo game, they actually took uh, couch co-op out, and a lot, of people, a lot of fans were angry about that, but... Um, Now a lot of multiplayer games have the connect to Facebook option to invite your friends
1: or... I remember in college we had N64 with four controllers. (laughs) Revolutionary. We could all all play Goldeneye together (laughs) and just go around killing each other in skirmish mode or whatever it was. Uh, Lately I've been playing uh, Grand Theft Auto and the multiplayer thing, that the the kind of, what do you, what would you call it, like the communal world? Right, the uh, online. The uh, online world is, is kind of fun sometimes, but then you're, tr- you're going around trying to complete a mission, and some, some person comes along and just kills you for no reason. <laughs> right. <laughs> Come on, I'm just trying to play my game. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that is actually the case with Dark Souls as well, um, as I mentioned, that you can invade other people's worlds. So you'll be in the middle of a boss or uh, some hard... Corridor, and you'll you'll see the message. So and so, dark spirit has invaded your world, and you'll go, "Oh no, please!" I've used I've used my grasses, I've used my my pine resin. Like I, I, I can't waste that right now. And then you see the red guy running at you.
1: So are you that guy who just waits for somebody to almost kill the boss, and then you just kill them right before they kill the boss?
0: Uh no, actually, no. I'm I'm more honorable than that. <laughs> but I, I I am the type of person sometimes to just turn off online off because I don't want to deal with people oh, invading enough. my. Yes, okay. it is. Yeah, yeah I don't think Or you so. can just disconnect the the, the Wi-Fi. I don't think GTA
1: Apparently. gives you that
0: option. Oh, it doesn't? That's yeah. weird.
1: The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.